You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Phil Guyford, who is using Django and Python to power a site that posts daily journal entries from a 17th century civil servant named Samuel Pepys. Phil, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So do you want to start things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the site you've created? Sure. Well, um, I live in the UK and I work as a, a web developer, freelance. And this site started in the end of 2002. And it's based on the diaries of Samuel Pepys, who lived in the late 17th, early 18th century. And he wrote a daily diary from 1660 to 1669 and I started off making a site um, which kind of like a weblog but with his diary entries as weblog posts and over time it, it grew sort of wider and deeper to cover more details about his life and times and London that kind of thing. Interesting did you just wake up one day and you were like I'm just going to start blogging about this guy by reblogging what he blogged about 400 years ago. <laughs> uh, more or less. Um, I, I was living in London and Samuel Pepys is quite you know, reasonably well known in the UK um, as a historical figure. And I'd never read his diaries and didn't know much about him, but thought it would be interesting you know, to see what, what he wrote about the city I was living in. L- looking at his diaries, because he, you know, he wrote quite a bit every day for nine and a half years. And you see the diaries on the bookshelf and there's you know, so many volumes of them, and it looks pretty daunting as a thing to to start reading. Um, but this was 2002, and like weblogs were fairly you know, new and exciting at the time. And it seemed an obvious match between a diary entry being posted every day and a weblog format. And it seemed quite an obvious thing, so I assumed that it must exist online already, but um, it didn't. And I also found that his diaries were available on Project Gutenberg, uh, copyright free. So if I was going to make a site with them, I wouldn't even wouldn't have to type anything in. So it seemed quite simple as a, a project to start, just um, creating a website, a weblog, using his diary entries, posting one every day, kind of in real time. Yeah, no, that sounds uh, really, really cool. Kind of reminds me of like what John Carmack did with those plan files back in like 1990s, if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But it was basically just like, yeah, daily files of uh, just him writing about his experiences throughout that day. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of doing it in real time rather than, if you're going to read it, you'd probably, you know, read through a fair bit every day and get through it. Ideally, it would take you less than nine and a half years to read it if you were reading it as a book. But sort of pacing it in real time gave it more of a, not like you were really there, but as the, you know, the, the weather gets colder and warmer and he talks about Christmas at the same time you're experiencing Christmas, that kind of thing. It makes it feel slightly more real and you're sort of living through it with him. Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually pretty awesome. So in terms of this site, like how much traffic do you get per month or per week or whatever makes sense? Um, well, it's been fairly steady, I think. I mean, I was surprised when it first started how popular it was. I think it probably helped that I launched it between Christmas and New Year when not much else was going on and it, it happened to get noticed by a couple of people who had 
popular websites at the time and so it ended up featured on the like BBC and um, did a couple of radio interviews and things like that so it, it got more traffic than I expected so it kind of ran through the nine and a half years of the diary between 2003 to 2012 and then started them again um 2013 um and so I think it's a bit less now than it was then, but we get around 150,000 page views a month, um, about 30,000 users, something like that. I think it's been fairly steady for some time. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned users. I did take a look at the site before we hopped on this call, and, and I noticed a couple of comments here and there. So it's not just like a, you know, a one-way street. It seems like it's almost like a community for people who want to speak about what this guy wrote about. Exactly. Um, I went to started it um you know, weblogs had comments and i originally built it on movable type which was a it still is a, a weblog platform um and that had comments and it made sense to let people discuss the day's entries because you know partly just you know it was sociable and they could chat about it but you know it's 340 years ago or whatever and it helps some of it makes no sense or is hard to understand so it's gave people a chance to discuss what was happening and ask questions and people would know the answers or find out the answers to, to things. And so it kind of um, created a kind of sense of community. And there were a lot of regular people then and now who posted to it a lot. And so after each diary entry, there's um, people discussing just that one day, day's entry. So it's quite a quite a rich source of information even if you're reading the book you could come and see what people had said about it yeah that's very cool because it's always nice to read you know kind of other people's takes on what they got from reading that entry yeah and it just kind of um you know helps feel your your you know, reading it with other people whether there are people who are you know, reading it 10 years ago or the, the same day as you um and i think there are about um 1600 people who have created a, an account on the site which you just need to do if you want to post a comment on there. Um, and so we've got about 88,000 comments across the entire site at the moment. Um, so it's quite, it's quite, it's not like daunting. I think it, in a way it kind of hits a sweet spot between there being no comments and it not very, being very interesting versus a site which would be way more popular that could have hundreds of comments every day and it would just be be too much and it'd be hard to, to find anything whereas we've got you know depending on on the, the day you know maybe 20 comments 30 comments which is quite a, a good length to you can can read it all without it taking too long um but there's always something there to read yep that makes total sense so going back to your site a little bit you mentioned about 150,000 views a month uh, what motivated you to use django and python in the end well like i said the, the first kind of run through for 10 years it was running on movable type um, and it was by the, by the time it had finished the ten year run. While originally it was just one weblog, it had expanded to as a kind of an, as an encyclopedia section to the site with lots of background information about thousands of people and places and things. And there's letters and in depth articles and um, you know, news about the site and stuff. And it, so it had grown much bigger than I originally expected. So on movable type, it was several weblogs and it which output php files and it was just quite a complex tangle of things and when it came to question of whether i would start 
the kind of ten year cycle again for twenty thirteen. I, I didn't really want to run it on the same system again, partly because movable type had it's more of an enterprise system now and it's less popular as a personal thing and plus it was such a mess i thought i don't really enjoy working on it and developing it anymore because it's a bit of a tangle so if i'm going to do it for another 10 years i want to have something that i enjoy developing and using and i'd been learning sort of getting to grips with django a couple of years before that and so decided to just rewrite the entire thing in Django and did it very quickly over the course of a few weeks in December 2012 I think it was and so yeah kind of rewrote the entire thing and initially that the front end was just kind of a bootstrap um, front end without much character to it but got the whole thing up, up and running again just in time for for January 2013 so it could could start running through again. Nice it's always good when uh you have some type of deadline that you want to hit. In this case, you know, wanting to roll over as soon as you ran out of content the first time around. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, these things can you can either put them off forever, or you just want it to be perfect, and so you never never quite get around to, uh, in quotes, finishing it. Um, and so, yeah, have, having a deadline of some kind is is a good thing. So, when it came to picking Django, is there something specific about Django that really helped you build that type of application? Um. I, mean, I, I guess I picked it for this because it was what I was using at the time and what I enjoyed using. I mean, I was I used to use PHP a lot, um, kind of from around 2000 or so. And um, at some point I decided I should, you know, partly out of learning new things, I should just learn something else. But also it felt there were, were, were other newer things around, like Ruby on Rails and, and Django that... They might be better suited for the kind of work I was doing at the time. So I looked at trying to choose between both of them, essentially, kind of around, I guess, 2010, something like that. Um, and it's re- really hard to to pick um, between two things like that because both have have their fans. And it's really hard to find a, an objective comparison between them because even comparisons are usually written by somebody who knows one knows ruby on rails better than django or vice versa so it's a bit hard to get to decide what suits you better but i think in the end i i picked python and django um it just felt a bit more me i kind of think i liked the i like the sound of some of it better like there's a bit less magic compared to some of ruby on rails and something about it i guess just appealed to me a bit more so i started learning that more um, so by the time I came to rewriting the site, um, Django was just what I, you know, the tool I reached for most um, when developing sites with text and images, you know, so basic websites. Yeah, there's the old uh, tale of Django versus Rails been going on since uh, the beginning of time, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really cool, though, that, you know, you can build an application like yours, someone else can build a different app in Rails, and they're both fantastic frameworks, and you can build cool things with both of them, and uh, everybody is happy in the end. Well, exactly, yeah. I've, known, I've never been one to think uh, the, the tool that I use is so much better than anyone else's. I mean, they're both, they're both great, and, and I just picked one because I know that I need to keep using one thing to, to learn it and get better at it, and if I flip between things, I'll, I'll just end up with two or more things I'm not very good at. 
um, and so I just decided to pick one. And I think it's kind of for as long as the tool you choose for a task it kind of suits it more or less, then it doesn't really matter too much. And I could have built this in Rails and it would have been you know, exactly the same site. Right. Except you would have written X amount of lines of Ruby instead of Python. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> each their own. Speaking of which, uh, do you happen to know like roughly the size of your app in terms of maybe lines of code or like how many, I guess, Django apps it has maybe? And if you have a couple of those, maybe rattle those off? Um, yeah, I did a quick look before we spoke and you know, it was around 12,000 lines of Python, um, about 200 files. And it's it's one monolithic app or project, I guess, in Python and Django talk, but it's split into you know, a lot a bunch of apps. Um so there's you know an app for the main diary section and then it's more or less split in, uh, split up into apps according to the structure of the site really. So there's a an app for the, the main diary bit, an app for the encyclopedia, um an app for the in-depth articles, which is kind of a separate weblog, that kind of thing. Um and then there's a, an app for um the comments, which is based on um, Django Contrib comments, which used to be part of Django and then was split up into a standalone app at some point. Um, so that just handles all the commenting across the site. So it's reasonably kind of slightly separated out, but you couldn't really pick any of these one apps out and run it on its own. And they're all kind of interrelated. Right. Yeah. I don't really work with Django too much, but I really do appreciate that they try to kind of nudge you along to use that idea of apps to kind of just separate your code base. Like even if, you know, they all need to be together to work to make your site, I imagine it makes it a lot easier just to know where to go to edit something. Like if you want to modify the comment system, you know just to go to the comment app and most of it is going to be sitting there. Exactly. Yeah, I, I very much like having just a, a nudge towards making a, a structure. And you know, other people might want to you know, structure things differently, but I'm not usually that fast. I'll go... I usually go with whatever is advised just because that's the most common way of doing things and other people will understand it. And as long as it doesn't seem crazy, that that's fine. Makes sense. I'll go along with it. And this suits me um, just as a way of you know, splitting things up into manageable, manageable chunks of code, really. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned other people there. Uh, before we did hop on this call, you did mention that it is open source on GitHub. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, yeah. It's up on GitHub. Um, I'm not sure whether anybody has done anything with it. Like it would be difficult to do anything other than run the same site um, with without all of the data in it. Um, but you know, that might be useful to somebody to see how to uh, do things. I mean, there's no no advantage to me keeping it private, so it might as well be public. Is kind of how I usually think about these things. Right. Well, you never know. You might have like dozens or maybe a hundred people out there who just we're looking for like real world Django apps and they happen to run across your repo. And while they're not building the same site as you, maybe they can go in there, poke around the code base, take a look at how things are running in a real production site, and maybe take some of those things that you've done and, you know, drag them over into their app. I know totally when I'm learning a new framework, like that's my go-to move. Check out the open source repos of real sites and apply it back to mine. Exactly. And it also kind of gives, you know, if anybody's keen, they can, I've had, I've had a couple of people contribute small like fixes or improvements to things which if it was private they wouldn't know needed doing but because they can see it and 
you know, I put issues on there for myself as a kind of to-do list, you know, that they can see see stuff and and hop on and you know contribute something to it, which has happened, which is nice. Right. So when it comes to entering these journal entries, how do you have that set up? Because I didn't look at the actual GitHub repo. Is it like a Markdown file that gets read, or do you have to like manually enter that in from like a database backend or like an admin backend? Well, because um, the actual text itself was freely available on um, Project Gutenberg. Um, originally, I was just pasting pasting all the diary entries into the CMS, um, originally movable type, now Django admin. Um, so they're all saved in, in the database, but I had to mark them up as HTML to add in links. So every diary entry has links to the relevant encyclopedia topics whenever particular person or place or object is mentioned and that was a very I, I did think about whether there was a way to automate it but because you'll know, refer to the same people in multiple ways it just seemed um just as easy to manually add in all these thousands and thousands of links um which you know, was quite laborious for nine and a half years and um, probably spent about a day a week doing that um, but now they're all in the database, so I, I don't need to do that task anymore. Nice. Yeah, I, I can imagine just going through, what is that, nine years worth of daily, let's call them blog posts, right? That's like 2,700 entries. And if you're cross-linking things all over the place, that yeah, that's like an endless task. Yeah, yeah. So I think there are actually 3,400 or so diary entries. And um, I looked it up, there are about 55,000 kind of links between the diary entries and the encyclopedia, um, which is the number of you know, href tags I had to add in over over the decade. Oh, man. So does Django give you any tools that kind of help prevent you from making typos in those links? Like if you use a template tag, will it just not run because the tag has a typo in it? Um, not by default. It's just kind of, it's just a text field at the moment. And maybe if I was... I mean, because I'd, I'd entered all of that text before I switched over to Django, maybe I would have added something that might have detected that kind of thing or made some of it easier if I was entering the text while I had Django. But at the moment, it's just a text field. And so when I occasionally spot, spot an error and have to add a new new tag in or, or fix something, I do occasionally you know, mistype and wipe out half the entry on the page. So I do manually check everything now but um yeah it's kind of it's quite basic really i mean the, the regular readers and commenters um they're always they often email me kind of improvements and suggestions to things because they're in a way they pay a lot more but they pay a different kind of attention to the diary entries than i do i going through them i was very focused on on looking for links to add whereas they're reading it from a different point of view kind of experiencing it differently so they spot different different things that I've missed. Right, kind of looking at it with a different lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that the site started off as like a, a simple bootstrap theme. How do you have these uh, templates set up? Like, is this a server rendered application with like a little bit of JavaScript or something else? Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's all, it just uses standard Django templates. So Django templating language and it spits out HTML. Um, and there's a tiny bit of JavaScript for like collapsible menu and then for specific features like there's a lot of maps in the encyclopedia and a couple of um, charts which use 
d3.js and the maps use leaflet um and so it's that kind of thing and i kind of for sites which are mainly text and images i always go for what increasingly seems old-fashioned server rendered stuff because it, it works and it's simple and it's quick so it work, works just fine yeah I mean, I definitely don't see it as old fashioned. Like you say, it's so simple and it's fast. It's like, why wouldn't you want simple and fast? Like I love making server rendered apps with tiny bits of JavaScript when I need it, but nothing more. Oh, exactly. And I, I didn't mean old fashioned in a, in a pejorative sense. You know, I, I like sites that are like that. And you know, if I go to a site, which is mainly going to be text and images and that kind of thing, and I, I get there and just faced with a loading spinner while it downloads a megabyte of JavaScript and and then runs it and then has to load the content and it just seems such a such a waste of everybody's time. Right, especially if it's to render like a thousand words of a blog post, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it seems crazy, but I think um, you know people who have learned to make websites like that that's that's the tool they know how to use, and so they while it's per- the perfect tool for some kind of sites, they'll reach for it when they build know a weblog kind of site and it's just it's yeah it doesn't seem the right tool for the job in my mind right so maybe uh going back to your app then using django and python what does the rest of your tech stack look like are you, are you using docker are you using uh like postgres or some type of like celery with redis or something you know it runs on heroku um uh so that's that's the server and uses postgres as the database um and there's some caching using redis the server I'm on is probably, I mean, I'm on the quite basic hobby dyno on Heroku, um, but that's you know, more than enough that I need. So I haven't really gone out of my way to to optimize and cache things because I haven't needed to yet. Um, it doesn't seem much point putting a lot of effort into making it more efficient and cached better when it's fine for the moment. If it, for some reason it suddenly became massively popular and that kind of thing would, would help that I'd look into doing more, but it's just got a, a bit of caching with Redis and um, it seems seems to run fine and speedy enough. So Right, so just to be clear then, you're just running one entry-level dyno to power the whole site? Yep, that's right. Um, that seem, seems plenty. Um, that's very cool because, you know, you mentioned getting like 150,000 give or take monthly page views. That's, you know, decently popular. And that, that entry-level dyno is... Uh, it's good enough to, to do that traffic, but it's also at the same time not like a crazy beefy server. Exactly. I mean, I, I like using Heroku because it, it's so easy to, to do. And I, I'm not that interested in learning how to administer servers, so it suits me fine. But I can see it gets Heroku gets expensive quickly if you need to ramp up and add more servers and beefier databases and all that kind of thing. Um, so it becomes a kind of a different trade-off then, but it's not that expensive to run a you know a sizable hobby hobby site on a hobby dyno um so yeah it suits me fine really right so that hobby dyno it's paid for it's not the one that shuts off and it has to spin up for like 30 seconds uh, if it had there's been no activity for a while no no i've got got a site or two on those that just because it's somewhere to put something that's not used very often but this is the i get seven dollars a month this one and it you know it runs continuously it just doesn't have some of the the nicer maybe resiliency backup features that um, the more expensive ones have. Right. Now, speaking of databases in Postgres, does the site have some type of search on it or no? Uh, yes, there is a search, which I used to just um, send the search form to Google like with a site 
colon peepsdiary.com qualifier. Um, but I did not that long ago change the search to use. So it searches the database now. I'm, I'm trying to remember what the, the bit of Django is called that, that does that. But um, so now it's possible to like, just search the diary entries or only search the encyclopedia or only search the comments for things. Um, so yeah, so that seems to work all right. Okay, is that search done using like and I like, or is it full text search or something else? Yeah, so I'm using um, Django's inbuilt Postgres searching features. Um, so it's got like a search vector field and stuff. I can't remember the precise details of it all, but um, it lets you set up you know, set up what fields you want to search and. Um, so on a, a model like a diary entry, how much weight to give matches in the title versus the, the body of the text, that kind of thing. Um, and I switched to that and it seems to work work pretty well. It took a bit of fiddling to show up things in results and like highlight matches and that kind of thing. But um, uh, it's quite good as a kind of faceted, just for searching bits of the site kind of thing without having to add any extra stuff because it uses... Postgres full text search, I think. Um, yeah, I'm actually a big fan of using Postgres as full text search because in a lot of cases like this, it's like the perfect tool for the job. Like you don't need to introduce something complicated like uh, Elasticsearch or, you know, even reach out to use a third party service like what is it, Algoria or something, which is an amazing service, but sometimes it's a little bit overkill. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I really try and keep things as simple as possible and rely on as few external things as possible um, just because they have a tendency to you know, change or start charging or disappear um, and you know I think Django added this um, particular way to interact with a Postgres search in, in I can't remember now 1.10 or something um, but yeah it works well. Okay so as someone like me who's not really deep into the Django community uh, what, what version of Django are you using to power the site? I'm using Django 3.0, which is the latest one. Um, and I kind of, I'm quite keen on keeping websites up to date, uh, even though at the moment I'm not really adding new stuff to the Peep site, unless I you know, have, have some time and set aside some time to add something. It's not kind of actively um, having new stuff added continually, but I still... I'm keen on keeping everything up to date because I like to, um, I think one thing people tend not to think about when they when they start a new site is how long it's going to run for or how they're going to keep it updated or, or what that will involve. Um, and I think if you're keeping a site running for a long time, like this one has been going since end of 2002, one way to, you either have to say, well, I'm not going to update anything and going to keep it on, you know, like the, um, long-term support release of Django for for a while and then we'll just do every so often we'll just do big upgrades to um, a major version and have to go through a, a big big process of updating it or else you kind of continually do incremental upgrades over time which is kind of how I try and do everything so every time there's a new version of Django I'll update the site and change a couple of things that will deprecated or disappeared or add new improvements based on that but it's kind of a continual process of just keeping it up to date so that it's all it can keep going for for a long time yeah that's a good idea because 
Yeah, you just go in there every couple of months, take a look at your dependencies, upgrade them when it's not a crazy task. Otherwise, you know, the contrast to that, right, is you don't do it for two years and now it's like suddenly you need to rewrite your whole app just to upgrade. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and it just, and you know, you say two years and it's the kind of thing you have in the back of your mind, you keep meaning to do and eventually you come back to it and oh, I know it's been five years and now I've been running this insecure version of whatever it is and I need to upgrade everything and um, now this thing doesn't talk to that thing and they're all, all incompatible and um, I think they really need to keep keep on top of it and just keep everything gradually updating and spotting small inconsistencies when they're small and tackling them then and rather than you know, having to deal with big problems every once in a while. Right. Now, while back you mentioned that you are using Redis to do a little bit of caching, do you maybe want to get into what types of things you are caching and why you did that? Well, I, I'm just caching everything. <laughs> I'm, I'm, as I say, I haven't really needed to worry too much about about that side of things because um, my my traffic and site seems to cope fine on the on the, the server it's on. So I just got very basic using um, Django's cache with a Redis backend, and I think it basically it's a page level cache, and I've set it up so it will cache the entire page um, for somebody who's not logged into the site. Um, so obviously once somebody's logged in, then some things on each page will change. And I could do more granular caching in that case, but I, at the moment, it's, if somebody's logged in, their pages are built fresh each time, um, which so far has, has been fine. But visitors coming from Google or wherever where they're not logged in, they'll probably get a cached version of the page. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's kind of funny how big of a difference something like that could make. Like if your site were, I don't know, a hundred times more popular, the difference between loading it from that cache versus rebuilding everything, you know, 15 database queries and your templating language, like it can make a pretty big difference. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I was looking at the stats and it's about 60% of the traffic is from is organic search, which I, this is all from the search engine. So they're unlikely to be regular visitors so they're not going to be logged in so sixty uh, percent of the traffic at, at least which um is presumably um getting a cached version. I'm not sure my Redis um I'm using a free Heroku Redis version which probably isn't big enough to cache every page on the site but you know most of it's gonna be gonna be cached. Right. Yeah if you have over three thousand articles like a thousand words each or whatever, yeah, maybe it just overtakes the uh size requirement on that Redis, I guess, uh, database on Heroku? Yeah, I think um, like looking at Google Search Console, there are, I think 9,500 pages that it's indexed um, on the site. So, um, yeah, that might... That's have, a healthy amount. Yeah, yeah, I haven't really calculated to how much of that could fit in the, in into the, the cache. But as I say, it's one of those things where it seems to work fine until there's a problem. Um, I won't, won't worry too much about it, which touch wood will, will continue to be fine. <laughs> now, speaking about maybe different sizes of certain things you run on Heroku, what about your Postgres database? Is that the entry level one or something else? Yeah, it's the, um, I can't remember if there's a free Postgres version or not, but this is a $9 a month Postgres um, database, which which is you know, plenty big enough for me. Um, and it, I, it always feels a bit, bit odd to me that the database costs more than the web server. 
like nine dollars versus seven dollars a month um which i some for some reason feel slightly begrudging about um but you know it, it works fine um I, i've also never quite understood why some places you know, you'll get a free mysql database but if you want postgres it costs extra because in, in in my head they're they're slightly different versions of the same thing so i'm never been quite clear but um but yeah so so i pay like 16 dollars a month for the that that hosting in total um which you know i could do it cheaper but i say it's kind of doing it on heroku is is easy and requires no no real work now it's there no no maintenance on my part from that end of things right yeah so when it comes to like you know, MySQL for free, but Postgres is paid for. I guess that's some form of like database racism. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but um, yeah. So going back to what you said about sixteen dollars a month for Heroku, I mean, was there a point at any point in time where you thought about maybe spinning up your own server as an alternative? Yeah, actually, I think um, I can't remember if it was when I first did the Django version of the site or at some intermediate point, but. I did run it on a DigitalOcean server for a little bit, um, partly because I was just partly because I thought, well, it'd be cheaper, um, and I was interested in in how that would work and learning something new. Um, so I did for a while run it on DigitalOcean, and I used um, looked into and learnt Ansible for deploying it, um, which was interesting. Um, but in the end, I was just, I think. Although it was interesting to learn, I just wasn't given the amount of free time I want to spend sitting at a computer. It wasn't high on my list of priorities of what I wanted to do, like learning how to confidently run a, a web server. Um, and I, I could do it, but um, it would have taken more learning for me to be confident that I was doing it right and not leaving it insecure. And I just decided that I prefer to pay a bit more and just not have to worry about that kind of things. Um, so I switched to Heroku, which I was familiar with already, just so that I, it was one less thing to think about and I could devote my my free computer time to you know, maintaining the site and adding new stuff. And I just enjoy coding more than I do running a server. So it was interesting to, to see how it was done. And might, I might go back to it again in the future if I want to save money or learn about that stuff more but um yeah it seemed to wasn't quite right for me right yeah that makes sense it's almost like back to what we're talking about like django versus rails like when it comes to setting up a server and, and ansible and all these other things like you know some people don't like doing that some people do like doing that and in your case it seems like with heroku being 16 bucks a month you know the digital ocean server at minimum is going to be five bucks a month so you pay $11 or more a month, but you avoid having to do all that stuff that you kind of don't like. So totally makes sense, I think. Yeah, it's just, yeah, weighing up what you're interested in, what the cost is, and um, yeah, taking it from there. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, like Heroku tends to get a pretty bad rap when it comes to how much it costs. Like uh, there was another guest on the show. I don't know, maybe you even know him, uh, Dan Bader, who runs realpython.com. No, I don't. Yeah, he runs like a pretty big Python site, but he's also using Heroku. And I think his bill was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $700 a month. And, uh, it, you know, pretty big difference between 700 and 16. But at the same time, it's like, you know, he's still, you know, he had a little bit more traffic and the site is a little bit more complicated. But at the same time, your site is still pushing decent traffic and, you know, database and Redis and 
100,000 plus monthly page views. Like, it's pretty cool to see that you can get away with spending so little on Heroku. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it's even if you're paying $700 or more a month, it's kind of if you're going to move to something that did less for you, that you had to set up more on your own, again, you'd be weighing up the cost versus um, the benefits of that. Um, even if, you were, had a, you know, if you've got a commercial site and you're having to pay for people's time, um, what it, how much you're going to have to pay either your own time or somebody else's time for managing something versus the time you might save by doing it on something like Heroku. And presumably, you know, Diners decided it's easily worth spending that money on doing it on Heroku versus having to wrangle servers or find some pay somebody to do that himself. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that was basically exactly what he said. He was just like, you know, if I were to hire someone like a DevOps engineer or whatever, it's going to be expensive, right? $150, $200 an hour. You're going to end up paying a lot more than $10,000 a year on Heroku or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's a balance of you know, how much, how much server you need and how much time you want to spend on it and how much money you've got. And they all come into weighing all that up and deciding, deciding what's good. If you just want, want to work on the, the coding and you know, design and coding and community and all of that stuff and not worry about the server, then you want to simplify that end of things as much as possible. Right. So when it comes to your Heroku setup, do you have things set up over uh, HTTPS? Like, do they provide SSL certs and things like that for you automatically? Yeah, they do. I think it used to be a bit more complicated, but now it's, um, you know, you've got the domain and it's quite easy to set up SSL. And um, yeah, so it's, it's really nice. I mean, it used to be such a, used to be expensive and difficult to do that kind of thing, didn't it? But these days it's, um, yeah, much simpler and free to, to do that. Yeah, it's very cool stuff. And even if you're not using Heroku, like you still have options like Let's Encrypt, which are, you know, a little bit of setup work, but you still get the free certs. Exactly. Yeah, it depend, depends where you're hosted as to how well they've integrated it. But yeah, it's so much so much easier than it, it used to be. Yep. So with the Heroku setup, are you using any of their add-ons for things like logging and metrics or error reporting? How do you get notified of when things go wrong? Yeah, um, I use Sentry. Um, a free level of Sentry add-on to kind of make it easier to look at errors if there are any. Um, and I think I've set that up to connect. I set up a, a private Slack channel, just uh, Slack uh, workspace, I think they call it now, don't they? Um, just for me. And I have a channel in that for each of my sites. And so I've got Sentry set up. So if there's an error, it sends um, that into my private slack and I, I could have that set up to notify me but there are so few errors and it's not like a commercial thing i'm going to lose money on if it has an error on it so i don't have that set up to notify me but it it does when i look at my phone or something see i can look in and, and see if there's been any problems which is thankfully rare okay so when it comes to those errors coming every once in a while do you recall like what type of errors you get yeah so they, they're very rare thankfully i think now, the site has been running for some time and not that much has changed. So any little bugs early on have been, been ironed out. But I occasionally get things like, um, what is it? The SSL connection has been closed unexpectedly, which, yeah, I'm not, I, it happens very rarely and I don't fully know what it means or what to do about it. So I haven't, it's like once every few weeks or months that I get one or two of those. 
so I haven't really worried about it. But yeah, thankfully there have been a few other errors. Yeah, it feels like something that's just like a, a random, an odd thing happened on the internet, which I could spend hours looking into and there's nothing I can do about it. So, Right. Now, speaking of traffic spikes, you mentioned that a lot of your traffic does come from SEO, you know, people Googling for this, this and that. The real important question to ask here is, does your site outrank Wikipedia? <laughs> That's a, a good question, isn't it? Um, maybe for some things. Um, I think if, you, I'm just, if, I, if I search for Samuel Pepys, I mean, who knows what other people see, um, Wikipedia comes up first and my site is second. So I guess that's not bad. Um, uh, but I'm sure there are specific things where um, my site will come up sooner. Um, we did actually have a, a spike in traffic fairly recently. Um, there was, I think because of coronavirus going on now, there were some people were drawing parallels with the plague, which happened um, at least one one of the big events that happened while Samuel Pepys was writing his diary was um, the plague happening um, in London and you know, lots of people died, lots of people left the city and he wrote about how he dealt with that and moving his family out to Greenwich, which was outside of London at the time. Um, so there have been parallels drawn in a way with coronavirus happening now and there was a um, an excerpt going around on social media on Twitter and Facebook, which was, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was kind of like a, an excerpt from Peep's diary, which seemed to draw lots of parallels with people disobeying social distancing and going out and causing trouble and and, uh, and parallels between the plague and, and today. Um, and it, it wasn't an actual piece of his diary. It was something somebody had, had written um, kind of in oldie worldy peeps language but i assume it was that that caused a spike of traffic people searching for samuel peeps and the plague um and so we had a, a big spike whereas we get around um i think 700 clicks from google a day onto the site um in march uh, 2020 late march it peaked at 5300 clicks a day um, so it was a big, a, a big increase from the usual Google traffic, and I think, that, and that was mostly people ending up on the, the encyclopedia entry for the, for the plague. Yeah, who would have thought getting like almost a ten x traffic increase from uh, a global pandemic yes. going on in current day? Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. I could couldn't work out what was happening at the time, but you know, it didn't. You know, the, the site coped fine, so that's that's all right. Right. Now, speaking of maybe other forms of uh, technical disasters and unexpected events, uh, does Heroku do anything special to like back up your data? Yeah. Um, so there's a um, it backs up the database once a day, I think. And I also have a another Heroku instance which runs a bit of code which translate transfers the database back up from Heroku onto an S3 bucket. Um, just so that I've got a copy of it somewhere else um, for resiliency. No, not not that much changes on the site frequently enough that I feel the need to do any more than daily backups, that kind of thing. Um, and there's not, and so other than the database, there's nothing really that's changing um, on there. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, an article or two here and there, some comments littered around. 
that makes sense to have it once a day. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also I use S3 to store some of the um, static files because that's one of the. Well, as much as I like Heroku, one of the downsides and the thing that trips people up a lot when they come to deploy something like Django to Heroku is the lack of a, a persistent file system. And they, you know, people come and set up their Django site and they use the Django admin to upload an image to Heroku and it seems to work. And then they get confused because the, the image disappears. Um, and so you have to use something like S3 to store some of the, the media files because um, that's you know, somewhere persistent to store them. So I use S3 for that as well. Oh, okay. Also, like what type of, well, I guess images are the main thing that you would upload? Yeah, it's... Um, some of the images used in the encyclopedia and and that kind of thing, which um, there's some images in the what Django calls the static files, which are all in uh, as part of the code base, which are can serve from Heroku using white noise, which is a an add-on. Um, so that serves those. But any kind of image files that get uploaded to the site, which I do for some of the encyclopedia um, and like weblog entries and stuff, they need to be stored outside of the code base and can't be stored on Heroku. So they go to S3. Okay. That makes sense. Now, when it comes to Django, does it have built-in capabilities for file uploads to S3 or did you have to use a third-party library? Django provides a way to upload files. If you want to store them on something like S3, there's Django Storages, which uses um, S3 bottle, I think it's called in the background, but Django Storages provides a a way to switch or you easily use different different backends for for storing files on um, including s3 so i use that which which works pretty well i i, I find s3 baffling whenever i have to set something new up on it and i i wish there was a way to i only use s3 to either store database backups on so i want a bucket i can write to nobody else can see or a bucket to store media files on which I can write to everybody can see and it seems quite simple things but just the having to set up a new user and bucket policies and cause policies and all this kind of it seems so complicated for such a simple use that um, I always wish there was a simpler way to just press a button get a new bucket for this one simple way I want to use it right yeah I guess you can always wire up some type of uh, bash script or use another tool maybe to programmatically create something like that but yep that's even more work to do yeah and i i you know i only do it every time i set up a new site which isn't that often and right it's like once every nine years <laughs> yes exactly and however you learned to do it the first time has changed so totally so on that note uh what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building the site i i think try and start simple you know when i i say on the the i don't know read the, the Django subreddit um, and there's often uh, people asking questions about how, how to do something on there who are, you know, maybe just started learning Django and some of them are you know, it's great to be ambitious but they want to you know recreate Facebook or something using Django or um, and I think it's you know, to start start with something simple and assume you won't get it right to start with because you know, whenever I've been writing Django for a long time and I'll start something new and have to rewrite everything I do, I expect, because you just kind of learn as you go. Um, and so start something simple and, and grow it from there. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. And it's really important to write code, even if you think it's terrible code, because how you get better is to look at that and then improve it over time. Like it's super common to rewrite code. I do it all the time. Exactly. And now every time I start something, whether it's you know, a new set of CSS or a new Django project, I think, wow, it's brilliant. There's nothing there. It's all clean. This time it will be perfect. It'll be organized wonderfully. Everything will make sense. There'll be none, none of those little things where I've just put this bit of code here because I don't know where it goes. And I suppose that I'll have to do this because I don't. Um, but yeah, inevitably, it always ends up the same. Right. And by the way, you know, before I was just joking around about you, you creating a new site once every nine years. But I, I mean, I guess you create more sites a little bit often than that, maybe just not related to this project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I work as a web developer as well. So um, I don't always do Django, but some of those are Django. Um, my own personal website is Django. Yeah, I don't, when I read other people talking about Django from their experience, and they they seem to spin up new Django sites so frequently. Um and obviously they develop their own tools for just for doing that and setting things up in the way they want. But I don't set up new new sites using Django that often. So each time it's a bit of a more manual process just because it's you know, the best practices and things have changed slightly since when I last did it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Setting up those like app skeleton generators and cookie cutter builds and all sorts of scripts like that. Exactly. I mean, f- for me, that there'd be so much there that I would have to work out how they'd done it. It, would be, it wouldn't be any easier than just doing it from scratch with a, a Django start project. Um, whereas if you're doing it frequently, that kind of stuff is invaluable, but it's not, not really for me. Yeah, I feel the same way. So Phil, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been good. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, sure. I'm usually Phil Guyford, all one word, everywhere. Um, my website is guyford.com, G-Y-F-O-R-D. Um, and Peeps Diary site, um, Peeps is spelled P-E-P-Y-S. It's peepsdiary.com. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.